Welcome everybody to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. In today's episode, I will be breaking down the final Halloween film, Halloween Ends. I sure hope it's ending. This is a bit of a bonus episode. It is spooky season, and we primarily are breaking down TV series week to week, discussing currently House of the Dragon, which is approaching its finale, as well as The Patient on Hulu, which despite all our criticisms, has had two very solid episodes recently. But this is a bonus episode just reviewing this Halloween film along with the current remake slash reimagining of Hellraiser, another legacy horror property that's been released on Hulu recently. And one more spooky title, Werewolf at Night, the Marvel one-off film that just premiered last week. And I expect there will be additional spooky season Halloween content in the next couple of weeks. Somewhere over the course of next week, also make sure you subscribe so you know when these episodes become available. I'll be discussing the finale of the Lord of the Rings series, another prequel that's recently become available on Amazon Prime, and yet another prequel series, the, in my opinion, very successful Andor series on Disney+. Plus. So stay tuned for all of that. Also introducing the next series we'll be covering beginning at the end of the month, immediately piggybacking on the finale of House of the Dragon, HBO has another prestigious premiere, the second season of White Lotus, which I'll be covering here with my co-host Sona. And that series begins on October 30th. So later that week, definitely check out our coverage of that show. If you'd like to support our show, please do recommend us to other friends and family. Track down some shows in our backlog that you may be interested in checking out. I'd recommend Severance if you haven't watched that yet, or if you have and want to relive it through our analysis. It was our most successful series here. If you're catching up on Better Call Saul, we did full coverage of the final season of that show and other really strong shows that we covered here on the podcast, Barry, the third season of Barry, and Succession, which is coming back next year as well. Lastly, if you'd like to reach out to us, give us your feedback. You can reach us at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. Okay, let's kick off things proper with a conversation I had with my sister about the Hellraiser remake on Hulu, as well as a brief review of, with no spoilers, by the way, of Werewolf by Night, the Marvel mini movie special, what do you want to call it, available on Disney+. Plus. No spoilers for Werewolf by Night, but yes, spoilers for the Hellraiser film, which is currently available on Hulu. Minor spoilers, but I mean, that film you really can't spoil, to be honest with you. There is one twist, which we do not spoil. And then the very long breakdown of this Halloween film, including, stay there for the end of it, or fast forward through it if you don't want to hear the whole entire breakdown. I do have a corrective for how the trilogy could have been saved with just some minor tweaks to the script. It would have required it to be done at the scripting level early in the production, but I think you can almost remake the films in the same sequence I described with just some editing. All right, Celia. So in this episode that I'll be publishing soon, a bonus episode here of just horror stuff, I am breaking down the new Halloween Ends movie, which I know you're watching tonight. And I'm not going to give you any information on that because I don't want to spoil it for you. I don't even want to know if it's good or bad. Yeah, I'm not. that's why I'm not even going to tell you anything at all. What I was going to say, though, is that this is the reason I don't watch previews. There is a conceit in this film, an interesting one, I thought, something that I actually suggested the franchise should have done two movies ago 
I was surprised by it. I'm like, oh, wow, this is the way the show's going, the film's going. And I won't tell you if they're successful or not. <laughs> you can figure that out on your own tonight. It was basically just surprising to me that this is the direction they went with this movie. And then I checked out the preview after I'd seen the movie. And they give this away in the trailer, which once again, I was completely surprised by the basic conceit of the film. And it's right in the trailer. So I'm like, okay, well, another reason I don't watch trailers for movies I plan to see. I agree. This Halloween, you can't escape the shock, the terror of Werewolf by Night. Tonight, it is every hunter for themselves. Good luck. I'll be rotting for you. But one of you is a monster masquerading as one of our own. The recommendation I have that I want to kick things off with is uh, Werewolf by Night, which is on Disney+. And this is from the Marvel Universe. I think Marvel needs to do a lot more of this. It's actually based on a comic book character, and they even bring in other comic book characters into the telling of the story. But it is only an hour long, and I do not think this is going to turn into a series or have all these other tie-ins to other properties. I think this is purely going to be a one-off, or maybe this character in another film, maybe next Halloween, comes back again. And it's Gail Garcia Bernal playing the, the lead here. It's all shot in black and white. It's a beautiful like a, a love letter to these old style Hollywood films, but very stylized. So it's even like a very heightened version of it. I mean, the design work is absolutely beautiful. And by the way, it almost like when you start watching it, you're like, oh, this is something you can watch with your kids. And then there's violent moments in it. And the violence is so extreme that it's so funny that this thing got a, a TV 14. It definitely would be a TV MA if it wasn't in black and white. As a matter of fact, the director even said they thought they were going to get a mature rating on this, but ratings board ended up giving it like a teen recommendation. And he's just like, if this wasn't in black and white, <laughs> and I totally agree, there is so much violence in this, like gore, that if this was a, in color, they would have definitely gotten a mature rating. It's still something you watch with your teens for sure. And uh, even I think even with the gore, because it's the, the tone of it is lighthearted enough where you could probably not take it too seriously. But the design work is absolutely beautiful. This is directed by Michael Giacchino, who's actually a very famous movie composer has made some very famous um, Oscar winning comp uh, compositions, scores for movies. And now he's directing as well. Apparently he's directed short films in the past. This is his first longer form product, but it's a lot of fun. It is uh, a mystery uh, uh, taking place on this grounds where all these people who are basically demon hunters have gotten together and they basically have a battle royale where the one person who survives gets to become like the lead, the, the main to inherit the, the, this bloodstone, which is like where all their power comes from. And it turns out that as you would expect, not everything is as it seems. And it's, uh, it's a blast. It looks incredible. The performances are a lot of fun. And yeah, this is something I definitely recommend. And it's available on Disney Plus right now. And hey, 55 minutes, easy peasy. Oh yeah, I'll totally watch that. And I'm also going to watch, first of all, I have to catch up on Atlanta, but I'm also on HBO going to watch yeah, it's called Warrior, and it's a martial arts prodigy that emigrates from China to San Francisco, and he becomes a hatchet man for an organized crime family. It's an action series, and it's by the producers of Banshee. Oh. So, and it's two seasons in already, so it looks really cool. So I'm very excited. I'm going to watch this. It's on Cinemax, though. You have Cinemax? 
I don't, but it is on HBO also. Oh, okay. So I can watch it on HBO. Oh, yeah. HBO Max. Was... All right. And if anybody wants to see this, by the way, I'm just looking at watch options. Season it looks one so cool. I would say season one and two is on HBO Max. And season one is on Netflix. So even if you just have Netflix, you can still see the first season of this. Watch along with Celia. Yes. I'm so excited. Beautiful, isn't it? It's really nice. You can hold it. What is it? It's a puzzle. And it's almost finished. Keep going. So if I solve it, do I get a prize? I do. Okay, so beyond that, let's talk about Hellraiser. This is a reimagining, really not a remake at all, of the original Hellraiser film. And the Hellraiser film, by the way, the original one, is already very different from its source material. It was actually directed by Clive Barker himself, the author. It's the very first film he ever directed. And in my opinion, actually pretty well directed for someone who had never directed before, based on one of his own short stories, although his short story is very, very different from that movie. So he, in it of itself, has already made a very severe adaptation of his own story in the very first version of this and every iteration of this franchise. And honestly, if you are a fan of this at all, watch the first film, watch the second film, not as good as the first film, but has some amazing visuals in it. Then that's it. Just stop because they are absolutely horrendous after that. And it is shocking to me that I think there's like 10 or 11 of these movies. Most of them are extremely cheap. But just the fact that this franchise, such a bizarre, bizarre franchise, has been so resilient. And one more connection to Halloween, by the way. David Gordon Green, who directed these three most recent Halloween films and is now going to make a Exorcist reboot that's coming out next year. He's also directing the pilot for a Hellraiser TV series that will be on HBO. So not on Hulu. The, the rights for this is all over the place because now you have a Hulu, I mean, I'm sorry, an HBO adaptation of this, which I actually think is a great idea because I think this is a concept that does fit well into a anthology. If they try to make like a giant five series epic about like a specific character going through this storyline, I don't think it would be interesting at all. But I could imagine just an anthology of different people finding this hellish Rubik's Cube <laughs> and the experiences they individually have, like in this hell dimension, I think that would be very interesting, right? You can imagine. That's what this feels like, yes, by yes. the way. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was saying when I was watching this movie. I'm like, this doesn't really feel like a movie if I did, and I actually said an anthology. Wouldn't it be cool yes. if different people did that? It's very interesting though, because yeah. it would be and I think what's so cool about it as an anthology great is that- minds. <laughs> Right. I think as an mm -hmm. anthology, what would be so great about it is that it wouldn't even have to be a very expensive show because you could imagine you could have an anthology where someone like kills somebody else to get their hands on the, uh, what do they call it here? It actually has a specific name, but this um, puzzle that they're trying to solve. You can imagine them like basically just that in and of itself would be a storyline, right? And then every once in a while, you know, someone actually like solves the cube and then you see the Cenobites show up. But you wouldn't even have to do that in every single episode. There could be like events that lead up to the next big showdown with the Cenobites, right? It can so, be kind of like supernatural. 
Yes, it could be like a but yeah, with like different a, people, like a demon of the week type situation. Exactly. Exactly. Actually, the analogy I would make for this, if anyone can remember this show, which I am actually a fan of this show, it was never good, but I watched it anyway when I was much younger, the Friday the 13th TV series. Did you ever watch that? I don't think so. It had absolutely nothing to do. I don't know why they called it Friday the 13th other than they were trying to draw an audience, but it lasted for many years. And what it was about this brother and sister who owned a like haunted antique shop and that their uncle or something was this madman, very much like Hellraiser, who had basically sold his soul to the devil and had cursed all these antiques and all these people who took the antiques home had cursed lives, basically had murdered people, whatever. And now this brother and sister have inherited the antique shop and every single episode they go and track down one of these cursed items it's like a mystery they have to find out who has the item now sometimes the people that they befriend over the course of the episode turn out to be lying to them they're actually the people who have the artifact and then at the end of each episode they need to like grab back the cursed artifact this is very much like what i mean honestly supernatural basically ripped off this old show but i think hellraiser could be in line with those type of shows that would be cool. But Supernatural did have this uh, ongoing relationship with the brothers. Now, all the stuff was so fantastical right. to a degree intentionally. It never felt like too serious, you know? Right. right. Even when they killed some characters off, they came back. And this would be weird because it, there wouldn't be any common characters. It would just be a completely new but I, I, I think that would be a beautiful, it could be like this really grungy episode and then they have this really beautiful episode and it yeah. could all be related. That would be cool. And I think that's the reason that the Hellraiser thing has survived so long. None of these movies, by the way, have been huge blockbusters. They just have this legacy because generation after generation, people keep finding this because I think the central premise is so fascinating. The idea that this device, first of all, it's like an addiction and just a little background here. Clive Barker wrote this story when he was in this point in his life where A, he was an addict and B, he was starting to get into like S&M. So you can see both of those things right in the film itself. And it's this idea, first of all, this thing that is damaging to you that you cannot put down. And that's the addiction part of it. But then also this idea of like him getting into S&M and it's like something that is pain at first becomes pleasure eventually. And then you just need another threshold and another threshold. And then just like an addiction, it never ends, right? It's this ever increasing need that they, that he was trying to put metaphorically into the story and into the film. And I think that's what's so fascinating about the original film. It's not perfect. Under the covers, it is pretty disturbing what the thematically what he's playing with there. And, uh, you know, just to start off the conversation about the new film, I think the new film looks great. I think the design work is incredible. I think the performances are pretty good. But it's just not creepy in the way that the original concept of Hellraiser was, where it just feels like a slasher movie where it's like someone randomly picks up the thing and then they end up getting killed. And it's just like it's not this thing that's pulling them against their own better judgment, like an addiction, like through the, the, the film. You know, they have to kind of come up with ideas with how she accidentally marks somebody, you know, as opposed to you think about the original film where this guy is like you know, killing people intentionally because he just wants to get another fix, right? Like it's what he's doing. I, I When I was watching it, I also, besides thought, it came off like a CW series. Mm -hmm. Everybody's also. Canadian. Everybody's Canadian in this yeah, film, by the way. Feels <laughs> it's like... shot in Canada, all shot in Canada, just like those CW shows. 
to tie in like okay supernatural has these consistent characters and the brothers and then the anthology idea of this as a series would be great because of all the different locations you never know what's coming up but imagine you tie those two together what you get is a cw series where one season it's about these specific people and that's like what six episodes or something and then there's season two is about this completely different group of people who also find this thing, yeah. like almost like American Horror Story. Yeah, I think it would work in that way. Maybe that's what HBO is planning to do. But back to this film itself, just a little more detail on it. This is directed by David Bruckner, who directed two very interesting films that deal with emotional trauma. And uh, I thought interesting failures, in my opinion, not failures, I take that back. Interesting disappointments. They both are good films that should have been much better. And one is The Night House with an incredible performance by Rebecca Hall. I love that movie. I didn't think it landed the ending, but until the ending, I think it's very, very effective. And the other film is the opposite, I think, for me, which was The Ritual, which is available on Netflix. Anybody wants to see that, where it's about this group of hikers who are trying to deal with the death of their friend. And uh, it starts off very creepy. And then it kind of meanders for a while and it kind of loses me a little bit. But I don't want to spoil anything here, but there is a creature in that film and the creature design in that film is so incredible. It probably is the reason that they gave him the Hellraiser film in the first place. Both interesting and both about using horror as a metaphor for loss and for trauma. So once again, I thought this guy would be a great match for this material. And I just thought kind of like, eh, (laughs) what was your general opinion of the whole thing? That's what I was talking about. It was fine. Yes, which That's is so bizarre. This is it's a movie. Fine. We're not going to break down the plot here, but I think you're in know what you're in for, for Hellraiser. That is why I say this is so disappointing. I was thinking a modern retelling of Hellraiser. It could be incredibly grotesque, like over the top in a way that it's just like, I can't watch this. It's so revolting, right? Or I thought that it might be uh, <laughs> like too highfalutin, too esoteric, and maybe missing some of like the ugliness of what is kind of beautiful about the Hellraiser films in their crazy design. And what I felt was, given all that, given all that, that what I did not expect to have a reaction was, was, eh. (laughs) And that's what it was. I did like hate it. In a way, I almost preferred that I would have really hated. It wasn't memorable. When you said, let's talk about it. And because I saw it when it first came out, I actually put it on in the background to refresh myself. Like what happened? You know, I don't know if I remember like all the important details. And then I'm like, there aren't that many important details to remember. This is another very weird thing about this film that we could just come right out and say it, which is the Hellraiser films, as grotesque as they are, they're always kind of horny in a way, even when the people in the films aren't that good looking or anything, because the metaphor, the central metaphor is about this addiction, which includes sexual addiction, right? And it's about SNM as well. So the idea that this would have, by the way, a very attractive cast, <laughs> it is just like not horny at all. It's just like totally bland. And I'm like, how did you get that wrong? So the weird. SNM guy who's like the captain of SNM in this thing is now wandering around with what looks like a golden organ or a, what was those things those people used I kinda to play? Like I kind of like you that. You like that it was walking around with that thing? Yeah, I, I kind of like, well, I kind of like the concept of it, that this thing literally is like programmed so that he can never become desensitized to this pain. He wants to experience, 
you know, sensation for the rest of his life. And it's like, all right, well, <laughs> we're going to torment you. It's in his spine. It's across his entire body. Yes, exactly. <laughs> with, with his tendons, his nerves, like spun, spun, spun around it. Yeah. yeah, it's so. But that should be really it like, wasn't disturbing, he funny right? with yeah. this weird exactly. i was like is it an organ what kind of an instrument is that like instead of being like oh i'm still horrified because you know after i tried to figure out what it was i was like and what does it do and then yeah. i'm like oh that's awful and then i was horrified yeah. but i was first just trying to figure out like what happened what is that thing why is it so awful yeah yeah it wasn't like the reaction you should be getting yeah. from Hellraiser. Right, right. Uh, one thing I will compliment the film for, for getting right, is thank God, you know, there is some CGI. There is a little bit of CGI in the film, but very little. Most of the uh, effects are practical effects. And man, what a difference it makes, especially with a like something with this type of premise where some of the stuff is grotesque, right? When they're like literally pulling these people apart, you, when like you're seeing someone getting flayed at, at the end, right? Like literally pulling their skin off of them. <laughs> this all sounds very gross. If you haven't seen the film, it's actually not as disturbing as it sounds, believe it or not. You actually see that and it's all done with practical effects instead of using CGI, which, you know, it just makes such a difference because CGI, as soon as you, I'm, I see CGI happening, it just takes me completely out of it. And here's an example of it. You see at the very, very end of the film when that guy gets his final transformation into one of the Cenobites. That's all done computer effects. And it is like completely not effective because it's just a cartoon <laughs> that you're watching, right? As opposed to some of those practical effects when that woman is like hung upside down and like turned into like a C and then you see uh, basically her entire spine gets pulled out. It's pretty grotesque stuff, but it's all done with makeup effects and it's really much better. So in that way, they get all that very, very right and still, it's just kind of, you know, what I'm just describing, if anyone hasn't seen this, sounds incredibly grotesque. And it's just kind of like, eh. <laughs> it just doesn't have the impact it really should have. I don't know. I feel like if it wasn't part of, you know, the series, but also if we weren't so trying to excuse this disappointment, that you would just be like, oh, I didn't like that. I was bored because it eh means I'm kind of bored. But that's what I mean. That It's bizarre that it, that it is kind of boring after all this. But at the same time, here's where I'm not just going to say it eh, just means I'm bored and, and I reject this completely. I think this is a bizarre thing to say, but I think that the design work is beautiful. I love the design of the actual puzzle box, right? I love the design of you know, how he has turned his entire mansion into a puzzle within a puzzle. I love the design of that, the architecture of it as well. And I love the, and by the way, I think Bruckner loves architecture too. That's why he made the Nighthouse. I love the design of the Cenobites. Like, you know, they have taken their actual skin and turned it into like, you know, some kind of fashion design. Like people have their back pulled up over their head and stuff. It is, it's, it's so it's crazy. insane. The, but I and, love it. But it's yes. beautiful. It's beautiful in its own grotesque way. So all of design work. And all the visuals, by the way, when people are inside of the hospital, Masha, the actress who plays Masha in uh, Succession, by the way, when she's in the hospital and she's been cut and you start seeing that the hospital starts changing around her, like literally the walls start separating, you know, you see doors opening up and like hallways opening. All of that stuff is very beautifully designed. So I can't fault that. It looks great when she's on the playground at the beginning of the film. And then she's like in this haze. She doesn't know if it's the drugs or if it's the puzzle box. And you see like like blur. You see the Cenobites uh, kind of walking out of the fog towards her and stuff, right? It's like all this stuff is so beautifully well done. All the design work is great. But the story is so dull and you don't care about anybody that it's just, it's such a missed opportunity. It is. And then the twist is kind of 
also like, uh, cause I just assume things to begin with. I'm glad they had the twist because I honestly think like if there wasn't for that twist, I'm like, these people are just a bunch of morons. And how did they even get there in the nick of time? And then I'm like, oh, yeah. thank God, at least that explains what's happening in the movie. Right. So. Yeah. But what I mean is I was like, oh, a twist. Right. And oh, I, yeah. I see. OK, that's cool. That's cool. That's my whole reaction to <laughs> this movie. I don't hate it. No, I do. just don't care. Right. And that's what's so weird about it. What's weird, <laughs> oh, what's, like that's worse, right? Right. That's and that's. But here's maybe where it's a success in a bizarre sort of way. I don't know if the movie series will continue. I guess it all depends on how well Hulu's ratings are on this. I don't know if the movie series will continue even as the HBO series kicks off. But I wouldn't be surprised. Imagine the HBO series becomes popular. They can drop these things at the movie theaters or back on Hulu again, and they could just draft off of the success of the series. So there probably will be more of these. And the compliment I will pay to this is that they have created an interesting enough universe with this, where if there was another film, I would probably tune in to see what they try next, right? Although I would not watch this movie again. <laughs> so go figure. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I like, I just don't care. Yeah. All right. So that <laughs> is that a recommendation? I'm like, I don't know. All right. And all um, right. Yeah. And we will be covering house of the dragon we got two more episodes we'll be covering the patient which has two more episodes then we'll be talking about white lotus and uh, we'll probably have more halloween bonus episodes before the end of spooky month so stay tuned for all of that <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot all right i'll talk to you soon all right bye, bye. So this recent trilogy of Halloween films began in 2018 on the 40th anniversary of the release of that original John Carpenter classic, directed by David Gordon Green, a filmmaker that up until that point had begun his career making some very low-key humanist dramas, and over time transitioned more into the comedy realm, having massive success with films like Pineapple Express, but also TV series like Eastbound and Down. Vice Principles, and The Righteous Gemstones, all shows that he collaborated with Danny McBride. And Danny McBride, believe it or not, is actually one of the writers of this new Halloween trilogy. Speaking of Hellraiser, which we'll be reviewing here shortly, I'm not sure how the rights on these properties work, but Hulu just remade the film for its service. And HBO announced just earlier this year that they would be launching a Hellraiser series on HBO or HBO Max. I guess it's all HBO now, considering what's happening with HBO Max currently. And unless they've also pulled the plug on this, which they haven't announced, there will be an upcoming series for HBO as well. Side note here, I actually think that Hellraiser is a very good opportunity to make an anthology type series. The premise is definitely elastic enough. I'll save some of that for our actual review of the film. So this is all to say that David Gordon Green, despite his early lo-fi dramas, has transitioned into a lot of comedy, but also, interestingly, all these horror films. As a matter of fact, next up for him is The Exorcist Remake. 
And the reason he has so much clout right now around these horror franchises is because that first of this trilogy of Halloween films was a massive success, making over $250 million worldwide. In unadjusted gross terms, it is the biggest slasher film of all times from the box office perspective. And even if you think about the massive success of that first Halloween film, if you adjust for inflation, its ticket sales were relatively similar. So 40 years in a very resilient franchise. And he built up a lot of goodwill with that first film. The first film which I have my complaints about. But that first film seems absolutely brilliant when you compare it to the direction this trilogy has gone in. And if you want to hear my review for Halloween Kills, which came out last year after a full year delay due to COVID, it's in this feed so you can track it down. And I also break down the absolutely bonkers 13 now series of films around this Halloween concept. Such a simple concept (laughs) and just will not die, just like Michael Myers. And as much as I disliked Halloween Kills, I got to say, it seems kind of brilliant (laughs) in what it gets right, which is relatively little, compared to the absolute disaster, I think, absolute disaster of this third film in the franchise, Halloween Ends. By the way, I'm just reading the headlines now, recording this on Friday morning, and seeing that the film made $5.4 million at the box office in its overnight previews, despite being available on Peacock, being available at home simultaneously, which is a stronger gross than last year's Halloween Kills, which went on to make about $50 million over the weekend, which is to say that this will probably make at least that much. That's how strong the appetite for this franchise continues. Nonetheless, nonetheless, I don't normally want to simply bash a property. If I don't like a film, I usually will just simply not talk about it or talk about the aspects about it that I do like. But my reaction to this Halloween film was so strong, I needed to say something about it almost immediately. I honestly do not understand what the goal of the filmmakers was at all at this point with this reboot. The film begins with what turns out to be our protagonist in this whole entire thing, a new character called Corey, who apparently does some lawn work. I guess he's preparing to go to college. It is 2019 at this moment in the film. One year, exactly one year, Halloween night, following Michael Myers' rampage in Halloween Kills, Considering this is just one year later and that Michael Myers came out of nowhere to massacre the whole entire town just one year earlier, I'm not sure I'd be leaving my kids home alone or heading out to any Halloween parties. (laughs) I mean, that didn't turn out so well for everybody last year. But apparently that is what happens. Whoever was supposed to be babysitting for this couple got some stomach bug or couldn't show up. This college-bound engineering student, Corey, shows up to babysit their young kid. I mean, how old is this kid? Seven, eight, maybe? And the kid decides that he wants to watch a horror movie. Interestingly, they're watching John Carpenter's The Thing. So we live in a universe where the first Halloween movie is canon, directed by John Carpenter. So John Carpenter exists in this multiverse and has made The Thing from 1982, I believe. Great film, by the way. And I think it's available on Peacock. So if you guys have Peacock, there's a little cross promotion here. Check out The Thing. Truly great paranoid thriller from 1982 with some incredibly gross practical effects. Definitely this kid's too young to be watching this film. Even Corey seems to be a little disturbed by what he's watching and tells the kid, you really shouldn't be watching this. This kid turns out to be a real, like a really annoying kid. And I'd say the first thing here, this is across all of these trilogy, specifically in the two most recent films, but that the kids are basically just so unbelievably annoying. Like I really dislike actively 
every child in these films. And here's another kid, and again, just <laughs> despicable. <laughs> this kid starts goading the babysitter saying, I'm not afraid of Michael Myers. Michael Myers doesn't kill kids. True, by the way. He kills babysitters. Corey heads to the kitchen and almost grabs a beer. Understandable under the circumstances. So many things happen here that are unexplained. While we're in a kitchen, we notice that there's a loaf of maybe pumpkin bread or something with a large knife next to it. We hear a lamp fall in the living room and Corey starts looking for the, for the boy. The front door is open. He hears some noises inside the house and to Gordon Green's credit, we immediately have a real sense of dread and the look of the film as well. So here's where the compliments come in. This is stylish. It has a feel of a 1970s film without having that full grindhouse style to it, kind of just feels like it. Not as slavish as the movie X, for example, that came out earlier this year. Almost seemed to be using the same film stock as those old films, if not at least just digitally presenting it that way. This feels like that type of 70s, but still contemporary. And I mean that as a compliment. The film is very stylish and is able to create a real sense of dread here in these early scenes with very little to work with. Of course, we are believing that Michael Myers has somehow gotten into the house. Importantly, I didn't mention it, but this is a giant house with a giant, not a spiral staircase. It has a staircase that leads up with one of those cutouts and it's like a four-story, multi-million dollar mansion. And this is his only child. No wonder he's such a brat. Corey heads to the front of the house, heads to the back. He hears the kids screaming out for help. And Corey eventually heads up to the attic, a very, very spooky attic. And once again, very reminiscent of Black Christmas. Yet another recommendation. It seems like this is just winking at other films that you should be watching instead. The Thing, for one. Black Christmas, for another. The original Black Christmas. Don't watch those other terrible ones. And the kid locks Corey, our hapless babysitter, in the attic. Just as the parents are returning, Corey starts getting worked up. He's scared, definitely, but also angry. The kid's outside mocking him. And boy, what a dumb kid we have here. He's standing right in front of the door, right in front of the door, as Corey starts to kick the door in. Not once or twice, he is repeatedly kicking the door as hard as he can. Finally, kicks the door out, smashes the door directly into this kid's face, and he goes over the railing all the way down, just as his parents walk in, and they watch him land on his head or hyperextend his back or something. But this kid is super dead. I don't think his fall would actually have killed this person, just to be clear, but still, that's what happens in the film. Oh, I forgot to call this out earlier. As he's walking around the house, the camera lingers on the fact that the knife is missing. It shows us the knife there, shows us the knife missing. Who took the knife? Is the kid walking around with a knife? All of this seems very weird. It's putting its thumb very hard on the scale that Michael Myers is definitely in a house, obviously is not. Then we jump ahead three years, and we see that Laurie Strode and her granddaughter are living together, and she's putting her life back together. She's not drinking anymore. She is writing a memoir of some kind, a survivor story, and seems to be getting back on track. Baking being an indication that, especially older women, if you're baking, you're getting your shit together. By the way, the title of this memoir, working title, Stalkers, Saviors, and Samhain, I think that's what it is. Samhain, by the way, is uh, the old ritual that became Halloween over time. Just a not a good working title, by the way. And who's the savior in this case? Is she the savior? Hmm. <laughs> a little high on your own supply there, lady. Corey's working for his dad down at the junkyard. He's actually gone to prison in the meantime for this manslaughter charge, which means that A, he was probably an adult, maybe 18, I guess, even though he was getting ready to go to college. Also, he rides a bicycle and he's late for work every day. 
and his dad offers him his old junky motorcycle. Maybe he'll get to work on time every once in a while. So this is a pretty sad outcome for Corey. The death was an accident, but now he is like the pariah in town. And the only work he can get, of course, is at his dad's junkyard. Definitely no college for him. Corey stops to buy himself a drink. Every time this kid goes to get a drink, always ends up in trouble. And he's not even drinking alcohol. We're talking about orange juice here. He runs into some bullies, a whole squad of obnoxious kid bullies. And man, just another bunch of kids. You just want to punch them in the face. But honestly, everybody in Haddonfield really feels like they are a piece of shit. And the first thing I want to bring up here is that I honestly felt until we get very late in the film, as if this whole entire film was made by Michael Myers. It like takes the perspective of Michael Myers. If you want to have any kind of deep read on this at all, you can say, you know what? I think when Michael Myers at the end of Halloween Kills was staring at that window where he was when he was a kid, staring out on Haddonfield, he was passing judgment on everybody in Haddonfield. That's what he's been doing this whole entire time. And you know what? Everybody in Haddonfield, except for maybe Laurie, is just a supreme piece of garbage. <laughs> so they probably all do deserve to die. And here we have another example of it. These bullying high schoolers who try to get Corey to buy them some booze. He says no, of course, smartly. He's already persona non grata. He does not need to have any more trouble. Then, hey, they know who you are. You're that guy who killed that kid. And they end up beating him up. He ends up getting a piece of glass in his hand. Lori comes to the rescue, encourages him to vandalize their car. By happenstance, happens to be there. And when she sees the cut on his hand, sends him over to her granddaughter's urgent care center where she works to get some stitches in his palm. She's working as a nurse now. And this seems like a meet cute. They seem to have some kind of chemistry here right away. Side note, Allison has terrible choices in men. She sees this damaged guy who basically tells her straight up, you don't want to have anything to do with me. I'm damaged goods. I'm going to bring nothing but misery into your life. To which she, with her eyes, says, you are talking my love language. She also is, seems to have had a sexual relationship with some total creeper cop who pulled her over earlier. Allison gets ready to go out to a Halloween party. Once again, maybe not the best thing to do just one year after the massacres. But hey, maybe strength in numbers. <laughs> Don't be in your house <laughs> alone that night. Probably the best piece of advice you can have. We see Corey at home with the dad and oh, this mother. <laughs> Another just really obnoxious mother. I'm not even saying this portrayal is misogynistic considering that I basically hate everyone. <laughs> In this entire film, except for maybe Lori. Allison shows up at the junkyard to have her tailpipe fixed and to get a motorcycle driving lesson. Like I mentioned before, she is coming on real strong. She saw this damaged guy and she's like, oh man, that's what I'm talking about. I'm making a joke of it, but I guess you can make an argument, and she even says it here, that because he's damaged goods and because she feels like damaged goods, given all the trauma in her background, that there's a kinship here instantly. So, okay. Okay, <laughs> I'll grant you that. But my, my negativity around the relationship is obviously based on how absolutely ridiculous it all turns out. We have Will Patton, who survived the first two films, barely, and Jamie Lee Curtis. They meet at a grocery store, and there seems to be a little romantic kinship going between them as well. The moment is ruined when she heads outside, and the people in Haddonfield apparently have this version of the story that Michael Myers only came back because Laurie lured him to her, which seems completely ridiculous to blame Laurie for all of this. But at the same time, it did put in my mind the fact that, A, why did Laurie stay in Haddonfield all that time? Uh, in a way, yes, to lure Michael back. 
because she knew he'd be coming back sooner or later. And second of all, especially not if not before that, after the events of 2018, with her daughter dead, and now living with her granddaughter, and all the risks that are possible with that, and Michael Myers' body never having been, been recovered, why is she still there? She has got to get out of that town. <laughs> if they come back and kill all those terrible people, it's not her responsibility anymore. But I would have left town a long time ago. I definitely would not have stayed there the first 40 years. But hey, after that, and how badly that all went, I would be out of there for sure. Another romantic pairing, we actually see Allison at this Halloween party with Corey. And calling out things that are interesting here in the film, there's actually this kind of beautiful sequence where Corey is writhing on the ground, dancing, and she's standing above him, like doing some kind of ceremonial dance, all in jest. And we see his head shot in this upside down angle. And it's actually a pretty beautiful moment here that he is somehow momentarily relieved of all the emotional stress he's been living under. And also very interestingly, this exact shot will be echoed later in the film in a very, very different context. This all goes very wrong because he goes to grab some drinks. Turns out he runs into that same boy's mother. She calls him murderer. This obviously is extremely upsetting to him. And he storms out and blames Allison for all this. Why is she pursuing him? On his way home, he runs into those same unbelievably shitty high school bullies. He fights them momentarily, but this prime primary bully ends up chucking him off the bridge. And here's where the film starts to get really, really weird. <laughs> Falls off this bridge, really potentially should kill him, but does not. We've been under this bridge earlier. By the way, we see that there's an old man who lives here, some homeless person. But more importantly, we saw this pipe. Pretty evocative Im imagery, this troll under the bridge. To what point? I don't know. <laughs> His broken body is dragged away in the background. Corey wakes up the next morning inside that tunnel. And of course, we've figured out that this is where Michael's been nesting for the past four years now. What's he been eating? What's he been drinking? How does he get his sunlight? Is he eating people? Is he eating animals? He's an old man now. If you just eat meat all the time, could you imagine what his cholesterol levels must be like? Corey's disoriented. As he's trying to walk out of this tunnel, very strangely, Michael is in some other area and reaches through this opening to grab him by the collar. And man, this is where, buckle up people, things are going to get really weird now. We see flashes in Corey's eyes of like basically all the trauma he's gone through, killing that kid and being bullied. And we know that Michael hates bullies, by the way. That's a little seed that's planted early in the original Halloween films. And intercut with this flashes. So you can say, is this all happening inside of Corey's mind? Is he just flashing through all this, but intercut in this is Michael's face as well, his masked face. And then Michael lets him go. So why did Michael not kill this kid while he was sleeping? He loves to kill people. Was it just because he was beat up? Does Michael hate Haddonfield so much that if Haddonfield is mean to anybody, they immediately become some kind of brethren? Was there some kind of mind meld or mind transfer there? For a series that supposedly is trying to take the films away from any kind of supernatural read. The fact that they've explicitly made Michael pretty supernatural in his recuperative abilities. He's basically Wolverine. And now this, this kind of <laughs> mind reading that happens here or spiritual transfer, what the hell is going on? Maybe we're supposed to read this metaphorically, that they just look into each other's eyes, just like Allison looked into his eyes and she said, you're like me, that they have a similar experience. 
basically what it might read is that Michael Myers let this guy live because he has a crush on Corey. <laughs> Just like Allison. Corey looks back into the tunnel, doesn't try to make a break for it, considering Michael Myers is theoretically hot on his heels, giving this creepy homeless guy the ability of sneaking up behind him. And he asks him, why did Michael Myers let you live? Good question, man. I'm thinking the same thing. Even mentions that other people got in there too, and they haven't come back out. So once again, is he eating these people? I'm not sure. We didn't see any bones in there, but maybe he's collecting them in other rooms. We do know from the previous films that he does like to prop up his bodies, set up little tableaus, and it would have actually been a little fun to see some of that here, but we don't. This creepy old dude says, I'm Michael Myers. Get me that mask. Get back in there. He's not done with you yet. None of this really makes sense, but you know, I don't think it's supposed to. And Corey guts the guy, mostly out of fear, but Corey's definitely going around the bend here. Corey ends up at Lori's house, looking up at her through the window, just like Michael Myers did back in the first film. And I have to assume this sequence is intentionally funny. <laughs> she heads outside to look for him, just like in the original Halloween. She does not see him where he was standing. He literally, it's like a magic trick. He pops out from behind her. <laughs> she gets the crap scared out of her and stands there like terrified <laughs> of him while he just basically tries to say, oh, I was looking for Allison. Allison shows up. They have a little conversation and she is still utterly terrified of him during this entire sequence. It's very, very funny. Probably unintentionally so, or maybe intentionally so. I mean, this is Danny McBride writing the script. So, hey, this, this, this script is so convoluted in how long this movie is, almost two hours long, and yet feels so rushed because there's so many different individual films playing out here, it feels like. we. What is this, a day? It's a day after she meets this guy, and now she's like saying, he was a nice guy, but now he's dead behind the eyes. He has the Michael Myers eyes. I've had two 15-minute interactions with him, and I thought he was a really nice guy. I wanted to introduce him to my daughter. thought they would be a good couple, maybe. Those are the first two 15-minute interactions I had with him. But now the third five-minute interaction with him, he's dead behind the eyes. You have got to avoid this guy like the plague. Despite Laurie's sudden reversal, she hasn't vocalized it yet. She just has this terrified look on her face. He tells Allison, please forgive me for my behavior last night. I just, I need to talk to you. Can you please walk with me? She goes for a walk with him. What does he have to say to her to win her back? He says to her, I killed somebody. <laughs> At this moment, you think he's confessing to this murder of this homeless man. I guess it would be self-defense potentially, you could say. But that's not what he's telling her. He's actually, I guess, confessing or reconfessing to the death of this boy and takes her, takes her to their abandoned mansion, which, by the way, how rich are these people who live in this massive four-story mansion who after the death of their son has just locked it up they're like well we can't live there anymore we'll have to go buy another mansion somewhere else and just lock up that four million dollar mansion i'm like these people have infinite money apparently but they go to the abandoned house Lori has a strange interaction with Corey's mother she immediately jumps the gun to go visit Corey's mother and then their interaction really adds nothing to understanding what's going on with Corey. it's a very weird scene in that it just serves absolutely no purpose Meanwhile, Corey and Allison are still hanging out together. They're out to eat. And Corey has a great idea. Let's get the hell out of Haddonfield. Yes, everybody, get the hell out of Haddonfield. But Allison won't leave because she has memories. He says some really disparaging things about her grandmother. She doesn't really seem to defend her mother, grandmother that much. She just basically says, you should have seen her before she went, before she stopped drinking, before she went into therapy. She was a real mess. But basically, they want to run off together already. They've known each other for a full 24 hours. Time to run off together, everybody. 
And importantly here as well, she gets approached once again by this super creepy, apparently older cop, and he blows his stack at him. Once again, an interesting idea here. Corey, who's been bullied his whole entire life, physically by other bullies potentially, by the perception of the town, and emotionally by this giant personality of his mother, tells Allison that he's not scared anymore. He's not afraid of these people anymore. This whole interaction gets Allison really horny. And she suggests that they burn Haddonfield to the ground. Let's not just leave Haddonfield. Let's burn it to the ground. And he says, Corey, that he'll light the match. He puts her on the back of his motorcycle, drives her home, and then heads out and notices that he's being followed. Followed by her ex, this creepy cop, and he lures him back to that bridge. And more importantly, under the bridge. The cop exploring finds the body of the dead homeless guy inside of his tent. And after a scuffle, Corey lures him into that pipe. Corey doesn't have it in him yet to be a cold-blooded killer and asks Michael, who emerges from the darkness, to show him how to do it. Michael's out of practice. This cop actually gets the better of Michael and they have to double up on him. And while he holds the cop down, Michael grabs his knife, stabs him once, and now he's back in the swing of it. He stabs him again and again and again. And I guess Corey is both repulsed and aroused by all of this. And Michael, we see like a shiver go down his spine. He seems to be healed again regaining his strength simply by the act of killing. I mean, he literally seems stronger <laughs> here as well. So there is nothing overtly supernatural in this series of films, this most recent one, but it really does seem in the representation here that simply killing other people <laughs> is making Michael stronger. In the middle of this murder, Corey does seem to have second thoughts and thinks, well, you know, now that this guy's swinging that knife, maybe I should get the hell out of here. And he heads right to Allison's arms, and they have sex, because nothing gets you horny like watching someone get cut up in front of you. Okay, another random subplot, random scene that serves no purpose, and I cannot understand why they even include it. We find out that Allison loses her promotion at work because one of the other girls there is sleeping with the boss. This has a little bit of a payoff later, but once again, why introduce this at all? This is already a two-hour movie, and none of the themes that they're trying to develop here are getting developed at all, but we have to throw this in also. Another random scene, maybe in a longer version of this film, this would flow better together, but we see that Lori is now at the local watering hole, same place where the party was the night before. And that same boy who died at the beginning of the film, his dad is now there. The mom was there on this Halloween party. And now we see the dad playing pool and talking about how his wife was the one that always wanted to pursue the case against Corey. He thought Corey was always a good guy. But the last time he looked into Corey's eyes, he didn't see Corey anymore. There's something else in there. Lori's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I saw it too. When he jumped out behind me, somehow, from behind that bush, scared the shit out of me. I saw those dead eyes. I've seen those dead eyes before. We get the payoff to that bizarre affair that's happening in the doctor's office in the very next scene. We see this doctor now in this beautiful home. He's brought this girlfriend home. She still calls him doctor, whatever his name is. Doesn't even call him by his first name, although they have an ongoing sexual relationship. She goes to take a shower. She hears something outside, does not get undressed. By the way, if this was the 80s, this girl would definitely be naked. She does keep her robe on here, heads outside, and we see a pretty grisly scene. Corey has wrapped a plastic bag around the doctor's head and is stabbing him repeatedly in the side of the neck. And she witnesses this. He's wearing the same mask he was wearing the night before at that Halloween party, the scarecrow. Importantly, the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz is the one who wants for a brain. So it's not the courage he lacks. 
and it's not the heart, it's the brain. And maybe that's commentary on Corey here. This girl gets away though, slams the door on Corey's hand. He's very angry about this situation. His hand starts to bleed again, by the way, the same hand that he injured previously. This hand will get infected over time and there's a whole conversation about how evil is an infection. I guess that's what they're trying to do here. Evil is an, an infection that spreads through the community, I guess. And that has been mentioned by the Will Patton sheriff character that more and more people have turned up dead in town, shot and killed in other ways. Definitely not Michael Myers. So Michael Myers has triggered a domino effect of murders in this town, the fear and hysteria. But in this case, we have explicit serial killers. Corey, outside of the glass, can see into this beautiful house where the doctor lives or lived. And Michael Myers, of course, is already inside. And he grabs the assistant, Allison's coworker, sticks her up on the wall and stabs her right through the chest. And we see the iconic kill or recreation of the iconic kill from the very first Halloween movie. Nowhere near as impactful here as it was in that first film. Her head does loll to the side and she does seem to recognize that it is Corey who's pulled off his mask here to get a better view. By the way, we are now at least an hour into this film, into a nearly two hour film. This is the second time Michael has killed somebody at this point. Lori's pretty sidelined as well. She's introduced here earlier in the film versus, or I should say compared to how sidelined she was in Halloween Kills. She was only in a few scenes. So she's active throughout the film, but just kind of asking questions about Corey to his mom and to anybody else who might have any interactions with him. This really is, Corey is on screen almost the entirety of the first half of the film. Allison is there falling in love with him. Michael is there only in their interactions. This is really the Corey show, which is a very strange decision to go in the final, final episode of this trilogy of films. Corey is the star of the show here, really? We catch up with Corey yet again, hanging out with Allison again. Seems to have recovered pretty well from this grisly murder he just was involved with. And is telling her, well, you know, when I was younger, I went to the radio station. I would look, I was always wanted to climb these towers. And in the background of this whole entire movie has been this DJ who basically made his bones on the Michael Myers Haddonfield thing. And he's just constantly going on and on about Michael Myers is coming back. And I mean, this is kind of like a DJ version of internet trolling. So there is some morality at play here in who the killers are killing which once again makes me feel like the moral perspective of this film is Michael Myers' perspective. And we see it here again. They jump off the roof and the DJ comes out to check in on them. I'm not sure how he knew that they were out there. And he knows who they are and they confront him saying, hey, you know, you shouldn't be exploiting people's trauma. So you know he's going to get his. Next, we see Corey is waking up alone, laying exactly where that boy died, once again, in that mansion. Lori is there, rocking in a chair, talking to him about the two types of evil the stuff from inside of you and the stuff from outside of you. And this is some really, really bad dialogue. You know there are two kinds of evil. There's the evil that exists as an external force that threatens the well-being of the tribe. Survival depends on understanding and awareness and fear of physical threat to our daily lives. The other kind of evil lives inside us, like a sickness or an infection. It's more dangerous because we may not know we're infected. Once again, the mixed messages that are in this film, he tells Laurie, threateningly, if I can't have Allison, no one can. Not something that anyone's going to agree with. And then say, you should let her live her life. Leave her alone. Which, 
not a bad piece of advice, grandma. <laughs> so which perspective are we supposed to take? Or are we supposed to believe that he has this internal conflict going on? I don't know. And honestly, at this point in the film, I really don't care. <laughs> Immediately, Corey is just spinning out of control at this point. He calls up Allison at work and tells her, we need to leave right now. She's like, I I'm working. Even though she's planning to run off, potentially, with him, she's like, but I have to finish my work shift. I really need that last day's pay. You know what I mean? So I'm not sure what all of this is, but he knows he's spiraling out of control. He goes back to that tunnel again. Has to go hang out with Michael. Michael now all of a sudden, total push pushover. He just jumps on top of him and says, I need this mask. You're just a man. As if the mask is where the power comes from. Peels it off of Michael. Michael does sit up though, after he exits. I'm not sure why we even need to see that. Like, did we really think he killed him? I don't think he did. And how easy it was to overpower him after he's been so afraid of him. But he takes the mask and now... He's going to go full on Michael Myers, straight up killer. And this is the beginning of the end here. He goes and tracks down those bullies, scratches up their car, lures them out to the garbage dump where his dad is watching some 80s action film really loud. So he can't hear what's happening outside. Allison is getting ready to meet up with Corey at the diner at 9 p.m. And as she's getting ready, Laurie's trying to talk her out of it. But she says he's the only person who makes her feel anything. They are less than 48 hours into their relationship, by the way. Laurie keeps telling her he's on an evil path. He's turning evil. She does sound like a crazy person here, so it's understandable that Allison doesn't really want to take her seriously. But at the same time, Allison is turning her back on this person who has rescued her multiple times in her life and has been right more times than not for a guy she barely met who is openly telling her he is a psychopath. <laughs> this is when the brutal killing starts out at the garbage dump. Corey kills all the bullies in some pretty, pretty grisly ways. There's some head smushing. There's some face burning off. His dad gets caught in the crossfire trying to protect them, actually, when he realizes who he is. Gets his head blown off by one of the bullies. He's the guy whose face gets burned off. And then Corey heads home to murder his mom as well. He's obviously very busy murdering and misses his appointment at the restaurant. Next stop on the revenge tour, Corey goes to check out that DJ again, strangles him, cuts out his tongue, and because this guy's old school, man, he loves his vinyl. Everybody's listening to a skipping record. The Cramps, by the way. One last stop for Corey. Last, but definitely not least, he's got to go check out what Lori's up to. Lori's moping around the house, sadly contemplating that Allison has probably left her for good, and calls in her own suicide. I thought this was a fake phone call at first, but it actually is that she actually called in a suicide. Interesting. I guess it does bring the cops coming. But actually, her spider sense is tingling, and she feels that there's somebody in the house. And when she fakes her own shooting, she says, did you actually think I'd kill myself? Which is actually a very good point. <laughs> this woman has overcome so much to go and commit suicide here indiscriminately. It's actually just a ploy, and she shoots Corey, sends him through the railings down, which echoes not only the death of that boy, but echoes also the shooting and then fall of Michael from Halloween number one. Now, I honestly do not understand what happens here. She goes downstairs to confront Corey. She says, you want to kill me? Then do it. She's already emptied the revolver, shot up the stairs, theoretically, to make it look like she shot back in self-defense. But then how did he shoot up the stairs and then she shot him? How did that happen? None of this makes any sense. But goads him, now that she's disarmed, to kill her. Go ahead. You want to kill me so bad? Then kill me. Once again, have no idea why these particular events took place. Allison, having been stood up long enough goes back home and another unbelievably stupid scene Corey says realizing that Allison's about to walk in the door if I can't have her you can't either or no one can 
and stabs himself through the neck. Now, Lori immediately realizes what he's trying to do. And just as Allison walks in the door, she yanks the knife out of his neck. By the way, this is the second movie in a row now where they've removed the knife from the killer for absolutely no reason and just made the situation worse. So she's standing there holding the bloody knife. Allison walks in the door and she's like, I can't believe you did this. By the way, the Michael Myers mask is laying on the ground. Maybe not immediately in her line of sight, but not far away. If she just surveyed the scene, she would have seen exactly what just happened. But she's like, Grandma, you're too crazy for me. I got to get out of this crazy town, which, by the way, I completely and utterly agree with. And we do see, as she's incredibly upset here, she's cradling his head in that same reverse shot, upside down shot, reminding us of the, the scene when they're connected in the club. So they're smart enough, these filmmakers, to think about these little visual motifs. And it actually works enough that I remember it here and you see the kind of tragedy of dovetailing these scenes together. But everything else is so preposterous, it's you can't really have any kind of affection for these characters. And once again, Allison just inches away from the mask, doesn't notice it, heads out, but someone else is in the house and picks up that mask. Of course, Michael has been following Corey. And if Corey's not going to finish off the job, well, Michael will. As he tries to put on the mask, Corey grabs Michael. And I'm not sure what the point of this is. Once again, is he trying to rescue Laurie at this point from being murdered? Is he trying to rescue Allison? Because maybe he thinks that Michael's after Allison somehow. Is he just saying like, no, that mask is mine? <laughs> None of this makes any sense. And he's has a huge neck wound, but apparently has yet not bled out. And Michael finishes him off. Even though Allison's just left the house, she is driving out of town, notices that the radio station is on fire, and runs into Will Patton's sheriff character again, who tells her, we just got a call from your grandmother's house about a suicide. And yet they haven't sent anyone to the house, apparently. But they're heading there now, and Allison heads there as well. And of course, Michael and Laurie are alone in the house currently, together. And to the credit of the film, and I go back to what I was saying at the beginning, that Gordon Green, when he gets into just creating this claustrophobic, paranoid suspense, works really well. He's able to generate that in moments at the beginning of this movie with no context. And again, despite all of the irritation with the film, we suddenly have Michael and Laurie together in the house. And this whole sequence is honestly thrilling, but very short. And I won't do the blow by blow, but eventually Laurie gets the better of Michael, ends up in the kitchen, stabbing him through the hand to this island with a wooden countertop, eventually nails down his second hand, knocks the refrigerator on top of him to pin his legs down, unmasks him, barely see his face, which is very burned, so we don't really get a good look at it. But it just shows an old beat up man who apparently has incredible strength still and even though Laurie has put a knife through his chest he springs back up again then she sticks a knife through the side of his chest through his ribcage through his lungs through his heart you would assume at this point he's bleeding out like crazy and then she slits his throat but hey that's not enough he pulls his hand out splitting it in half bifurcating his hand and grabs her around the throat and Laurie just says do it kill me and that's when Allison shows up, grabs that arm from around her grandmother's neck, and she's able to like snap his forearm at, right in the middle. And then Laurie slits his wrist too. And he apparently has no blood left in his body, but that's not good enough. They take his body, they tie it to the roof of the car, just in case he's still alive, because who knows? Who knows in this film? And they drive him out to the garbage dump and put him into like one of those giant grinders that will grind a whole car down. And we see his whole entire body crushed. And that is the end of Michael Myers. Laurie finishes her memoir, 
the news have turned the story around of Laurie Strode, the survivor. What an incredible story of survival. Will Patton visits, and there's maybe a little love in the future for these two. And we see Michael's mask. Man, I'd say I would put that thing away or destroy it completely. <laughs> Why is that thing still around? And that is the end of the film. All right. This breakdown already is much longer than I expected it to be. But there's so many things to say here about just how absolutely ridiculous this whole film is. And the compliment I would make of it is that if this wasn't a Halloween film, and this was something that you ran into, you had no idea what this film was, and you just saw a story of some guy who was bullied, and it was like My Bodyguard from the 1970s or 80s, whenever that movie came out, but with a serial killer as being like the guy who teaches you to stand up for yourself and go out and kill on your own. Hey, I don't have to kill everybody. You can go and fight your own fights by murdering everybody in town. That would be so crazy as a premise for a film that I bet you there would be people would say, hey, wow, this is a pretty edgy thing to do. And if the film was about that and didn't have to do all this other franchise maintenance, it would be, like I said, in some kind of weird retro way or maybe as like indie type horror film would work interestingly. But as a Halloween film, it's just so weird that we're spending so much time with this new character. What are they trying to say in introducing this acolyte now? It doesn't make any sense. Although it has been introduced earlier in the film. There was this doctor in the very first film who was kind of a Michael Myers worshiper. And he claims that there are others out there as well. And I'm not sure if that was something that was supposed to get developed here over the course of the series. And maybe they didn't have the budget for it. Or honestly, it just feels like everybody involved is just like tired. This was like the least scary of all these films. It just seemed like they were checking off boxes, but boxes that nobody wanted to see. So as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I'm always trying to correct films that I see, especially if I think there's just a few mistakes or if I feel like something is a significantly missed opportunity. And this really falls into that camp of a completely missed opportunity. And what I would say, and no one's asking me, <laughs> of course, <laughs> this is not my job, but I feel like there are parts in this trilogy that could have made for a more interesting exploration of these same ideas. And in very general terms, what I would say is this film, and I'm not sure how they wrote these films or how they sketched out this trilogy, but I'm pretty sure they sketched it out when they first signed off on the very first of these three. But I would flip the second and third film in very general terms. You have Michael Myers surviving the fire of the first film somehow, but grievously injured, near death. People think he hasn't even survived. You then have a bullied kid in the second film, basically this film. And let's not say that he just accidentally stumbles upon Michael. Let's say that he does find him near death and he actually nurses him back to health and he actually becomes like legitimately an acolyte. He looks up to him that he is someone who can mentor him into standing up for himself. And then he doesn't just arbitrarily stumble upon Lori and her daughter. He stalks them because he's working on behalf of Michael. And we don't even know if Michael's still alive at this moment. And maybe he does in stalking the daughter. They do start a relationship or the beginnings of one. And then he's torn. He's torn between this allegiance to Michael and to the daughter. Something they try to develop here, but it's not really developed at all. So there's a real battle for his soul. And then maybe people start turning up dead and they start saying, is this Michael? Is this a copycat? What's happening? And we don't know either. Is Michael back? Is he healthy again? Or is it this kid? And then we would leave that as a mystery. I love mysteries in my horror films, by the way. And then at the end, a confrontation, he dies, they unmask him, and it's actually the bullied character. 
This is, of course, incredibly traumatic to Allison. And this binds her to her grandmother even more strongly for the third film, which we now once again have flipped it over because at the end of the second film, just when we think, oh, that wasn't Michael after all, it was this kid, but we hear the breathing again and Michael is back or we think he is. Then third film, we flipped it. Second film, this film becomes a second film, more or less. The second film becomes the third film. Now we are years in the future. We see Laurie and Allison trying to recover. It's been years. They assume from the very beginning that Michael has indeed died after the first film and all the killings in the second film were due to the copycat. Allison obviously traumatized from all of that. And then the killings begin. Similar to the second film, which had some excellent kills, by the way, just as a straight up slasher film, well executed individual kill sequences. But that's literally all that film was just one after the other after the other. Very well executed, by the way, expertly. But it becomes a Friday the 13th movie at that point. It's just completely empty of any other thoughts other than just cool kills. So as I mentioned, it's years in the future. People have gotten over it. And even Laurie has let her guard down. Then the killings begin. Nobody's aware of them at first. And it's just like the second film where there's just all these kills happening arbitrarily, house after house after house. Everyone in Haddonfield basically is a target. And it just escalates and escalates. And then Laurie figures out what's going on. She's trying to raise the alarms. And this all culminates in the final battle between the two of them. And it wraps up similarly to where we have at this point here. So honestly, you could rearrange a lot of the scenes that we have here and maybe somebody out there start editing these. And by the way, re-edit the first film too to take out some of the, the comedy. It doesn't work at all. Cut out the podcasters out of the first film, right? That's the first film. And just get rid of some of that arbitrary extra stuff. You can cut this down into like two tight movies or three very short films and uh, the trajectory of the storyline should almost be inverted between the third film and the second film and maybe just maybe that would save some of this story so you guys tell me are you halloween fans did you like this movie i i don't know i i, I can't imagine anyone being really satisfied with this film but if you disagree or agree let me know email me at need some introduction at gmail.com and tell me if you think my inverted version of the story would be a better version. All right, that's my very, very long, this is definitely my longest review recap for an individual movie and all for a film that's really not that good. <laughs> and as I mentioned, stay tuned for the last two recap episodes of House of the Dragon, two more episodes of The Patient, the Hulu original series, and more spooky season bonus content. I don't know if we will have a Halloween episode next week, or I should say, we probably will have one. I'm not sure what will be in it. But one thing we will definitely be covering is the Cabinet of Curiosities, Guillermo del Toro anthology series on Netflix, which will be premiering two episodes per night leading up to Halloween, or actually leading up to the 28th. So it's kind of a weird release pattern, but interesting serialization, two episodes per night, and maybe it'll create a lot of social media chatter. Maybe I'll be breaking those episodes down one night at a time. Might be fun to do short episodes recapping each one. So that remains to be seen if I have that availability on my calendar, but I will try to get down those shorter episodes or minimally, we'll definitely get one long episode out over the weekend to recap all of those. I am a fan of Del Toro and I do think that will be an interesting conversation. So enjoy that spooky content or other recaps we have here as well. And I'll talk to you soon. Us get into this conclusion of this recent Halloween trilogy, Halloween Ends.